Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And Caroline, a little, a little something about me. I usually start out my day listening to Morning Edition on NPR. Mm-hmm. As do I. I am, I am an NPR listener. I'm an NPR fan. And a little while ago, a story caught my attention because it was on child prodigies. And the subject of the story was this young woman who started composing these gorgeous piano pieces when she was three years mm. old. <laughs> three. Man, as someone who started playing the piano when she was 26, I'm quite impressed. Yeah, and she had already recorded a few albums. She had played Carnegie Hall. She was 12. And she even played an impromptu piece for the host. He asked, he set the scene of going, having to show up at the NPR studios really, really early in the morning to record Morning Edition, how quiet and kind of gloomy it is there. And so he asked if she could play a piece inspired by that. And she did. And it was beautiful. And I thought there, you know, it's interesting to hear about this young woman being focused on as a child prodigy, because I feel like a lot of times it's always the boy prodigy. Right. And you don't even realize when you're reading all of these articles and things about prodigies that it is all boys. Yeah, it's very, very male focused. Right. And so some commonly cited prodigies that a lot of people bring up in these articles include Mozart, who began playing the piano at three, picked up the violin at four, wrote his first symphony by eight and wrote his first opera by 12. NBD, no big deal. Um, there's also William James Sittis, who could read at 18 months, had written four books by seven and was fluent in eight languages at the same time, gave a lecture at Harvard at nine and entered Harvard at 11. And his background was in the field of math and cosmology. And for Lovecraft fans out there, yes, H.P. Lovecraft, one of the most influential horror writers of the 20th century, learned to read at two and was writing complex poetry by six. I would like to note, though, that I was also writing poetry (laughs) around the same time. And my first poem was called I Had a Little Ladybug. I'm not even lying. And my mother told me it was beautiful. That's adorable. <laughs> so I didn't start writing poetry until around puberty when everything was the worst. Yeah, yeah. The the dark angsty poems. You know, Caroline, we should just do an episode of, of bringing in our teenage poetry <laughs> sometime. No, well, you know, when GeoCities wiped out its entire archive, my poetry was lost to the ages. No. Yeah. Um, well, some other prodigies include Kim Ung-yong, who's a com- Korean professor now, but at three years old, he went to college as a physics student and, no big deal, uh, was invited to the U.S. by NASA to study as he got his Ph.D. in the U.S. Yeah, I want to say at one point, and maybe he still does, hold the Guinness World Record for being the smartest person on the planet I mean, you'd have to be pretty smart to study physics at three, but that's that's just me. Well, what about Picasso? Uh, he had a total grasp of the fundamentals of art before the age of 12. But again, these lists, like you said, are so dominated by guys. And we have nothing against boy geniuses. Oh, sure. Not, not at all. But 
when I came upon not one but two countdowns that shall remain nameless that contained between both of them a single female prodigy, you start to wonder what's going on with this. And as we'll get into in the podcast, there are some compelling patterns within or among, I should say, prodigies that does skew towards certain peculiarities with the male brain. Right. And Lynn Goldsmith, addressing the lack of girls from these lists, she cited a 1986 study that describes an uncomfortably large number of historical cases of exceedingly gifted women scientists and mathematicians who found that they had to fight for the simple privilege of instruction in their chosen fields. And this is something that we kind of touched on in our STEM episodes, because the fact that you have to fight to even study something really affects whether you can develop the skills and abilities in those areas. Yeah, and this is a subject for another podcast, but it often relates to perhaps our concept of the genius as being male. But when we look at some of these incredible lady minds, we can't leave out 17th century naturalist and philosopher Anne Conway. By the time she was 12, she'd already learned several languages and had begun serious study of science and philosophy under her older brother. She continued these studies throughout her lifetime, and in her early 40s, she wrote a treatise entitled Principles of the Most Ancient and Modern Philosophy, which ended up influencing, to to make a long story short, influencing a lot of mathematical minds at the time. And speaking of math, when we look at the story of Maria Agnesi, who became known for the math studies that she completed while still in her 20s, uh, we see why there might have been more impediments to women being recognized as geniuses, to being able to pursue those uh, scholarly interests that they would naturally have as these prodigies. Um, her father, who was also a math professor at the University of Bologna, first noticed her intellectual precocity, and he hired a fellow mathematician to serve as her tutor. But on top of having to study all this math that she was really great at, she also had to oversee the education and care of her 20 younger siblings. Uh, there's so much ah with that. But but she still was able to publish a collection of 190 essays on philosophy, logic, mechanics, elasticity, celestial mechanics, and, of course, Newton's theory of universal gravitation at the age of 20. So absolutely this woman is a prodigy if she is able to care for 20 children. She reminds me of Lillian Gilbreth, mm-hmm. the uh, mother of modern management, who we talked about in our engineering podcast, who did all of this amazing work with an engineering and also had 12 kids. Moving into a female prodigy of the more modern era is Shakuntala Devi, who was born in 1929. She is a mental calculator able to perform exceedingly complex arithmetic calculations with lightning speed. And, you know, if you've ever read any um, Oliver Sacks, you know about these incredible brains who can make these computations at lightning speed. But what's so awesome about Debbie is she's the only case of a girl calculator described in literature. So who knows how many there have been, but she is the one that the history books shall remember. Well, speaking of being a human calculator, you do see just with those three prodigies right there, 
this pattern that you'll see among other prodigies of being really drawn to math and science, to very rules-oriented disciplines. Um, but first, can we take a moment away from the numbers and talk just a tiny bit about words and what prodigy really means? Because it didn't just start out as a, a child who could do something exceptional with their baby brains. Right. The origins of the word lie with the Latin word prodigum, which means prophetic sign or omen. And in the late 15th century, the word prodigy was used to refer to a sign, portent, something extraordinary from which omens are drawn. But then by the 1650s, that meaning of the the child with exceptional abilities is first recorded. But moving to today, when we hear about child prodigies, gifted children, savants, the lines between them are often murky, but they are distinct things. And we're focusing specifically in this episode on prodigies. And even though prodigies and savants are marked by their remarkable capabilities in specific domains like music, art, math, chess in particular, savant syndrome is more of a marker of an overall disability. Right. Uh, Noted researcher Daryl Treffert uh, talks about savant syndrome as islands of genius and ability in persons with certain limitations or disability like kids with autism spectrum disorders or other central nervous system injuries, diseases, or disorders. So it's kind of like you're a genius despite the fact that you have a disability. And so the approach to savants is often clinical. We need to fix their deficits. Whereas when you look at the definition of prodigy coming from David Feldman, who's a psychologist at Tufts University, a prodigy is a child, typically under 10, who performs at the level of a highly trained adult in a very demanding field or endeavor. And the approach to prodigies is from more of a psychological perspective. We assume they're blessed and we want to foster their incredible abilities. Yeah, and whereas gifted kids do perform at a high level academically, prodigies are above and beyond. And it's usually focused in one area. Um, but where did the modern interest in gifted children and prodigies come from is fascinating because we have to talk about this Stanford psychologist named Lewis Terman, who coined the term gifted to describe these kids who he felt like were a lot like himself. Um, and, and really what he wanted to do with his research on gifted kids and prodigies was to crush the stereotype of the brainy, bookish kid as just a frail oddball who couldn't get along with other people. Right, because he himself had grown up on a farm with a lot of hardy siblings, but he himself was was kind of bookish, and he was sick of the stereotype that he was somehow weaker just because he used his brains over his brawn. And so when he came to Stanford in 1910, he was eager to measure intelligence and get to work in that field. And so he adopted Binet's intelligence test for U.S. kids calling it the Stanford Binet test. And he called this level of intelligence that he was trying to capture the intelligence quotient IQ. And in 1916, when he released the book, The Measurement of Intelligence, it ushered in widespread IQ testing. But there is a dark underbelly to these IQ tests because... 
Womp womp. Terman was also kind of a fan of eugenics. Yeah, this was a major push behind his effort to identify these gifted kids because he and his group of intelligence tester- testers envisioned IQ scores dictating what kind of education and jobs a person could get. So whatever your IQ was, you would be a leader or you would be institutionalized and discouraged from having children. Yeah. In other words, Terman was pro sterilization for people he did not consider that smart. Um, but through IQ testing, Terman identified more than a thousand subjects between the ages of three and 28 with high IQs for his grand study called the Genetic Study of Genius, which has since been renamed the Terman Study of Gifted Children. And he tracked these kids as long as he lived. And some of these kids, who are obviously now adults, are still being tracked to see what the correlations are between having these high IQs. And he also collected other personal information from them, obviously, and how they performed in life in terms of marriage, in terms of jobs, uh, whether or not they got any professional awards, things like that. And while this incredible study basically helped establish methods for longitudinal studies and gr- gave a great snapshot of lives affected by World War One, World War Two, the Depression, all of this stuff, there were some things that were undermining his study. That included his personal relationships with the kids, the fact that the group was overwhelmingly white, urban, and middle class, and the gender imbalance, 856 boys versus 672 girls, not to mention that there was no comparison group. And even Terman himself was confused by the gender imbalance because he, you know, he had asked for, he had enlisted teachers basically to help him identify the top students in the class. And so he was surprised too that there were more boys. Yeah. But I mean, it's when you look at that sample population, they're almost all exclusively too from California. Right. For instance. So it's more, how do kids in California who are brought up with uh, significant financial means fare? And they fare all right. Um, two-thirds of the men and women earn bachelor's degrees, which is a ten times the national rate. And that was happening during the Great Depression on top of that. And, for instance, they collectively earned 350 patents. Although, this was something that was pointed out in a few articles None of the kids in that genius study went on to become Nobel Prize winners. And actually, I think three, two or three of the boys who signed up for it but were later turned away went on to win Nobel Prizes in physics. Yeah. Boom. There you go. Um, one interesting thing gender related from this Terman study is that the women in Terman's study had fewer children and bore them later in life than others of their generation. More went to college and grad school, and more had careers, and more remained unmarried. And this sort of foreshadows later trends. So these California termites, as they called themselves, were sort of ahead of the curve. And despite the methodological flaws in Terman's study, he was able to highlight shared characteristics among the termites that you would still see today with child prodigies. And there are three big factors that stood out. Obviously, these kids have high IQs, but there's also a lot of parental encouragement going on and confidence rather than just having a high IQ. Right. And when you look into the definition of prodigy that we get with help from Terman, but also people like Feldman, 
Um, the definition of prodigy puts an emphasis on performance as a criterion for calling someone a prodigy, as opposed to things like IQ testing, just looking at their IQ. Prodigiousness as a distinctly human phenomenon. So, Kristen, you just mentioned parental encouragement. So tied up in being a prodigy is that it can only occur with the support and assistance of other human beings. And so when you look at parents' roles, they're often involved in the same or related field as their child prodigies. For example, Picasso and Mozart's parents were in the same fields as their prodigious children. And these parents are often older when they have kids and are generally willing to devote major chunks of time and energy to develop their children's talents. And so behind this is the whole idea that like, okay, well, you might be a friggin' genius, but if nobody helps foster your abilities, you're not going to flourish. And when it comes to fostering abilities, there's also this emphasis on the specific realms within which prodigious behavior appears, as opposed to, again, psychometric intelligence, which aims to assess general intellectual ability. You have kids who are incredible at math, incredible at chess, who are creating these incredible complex paintings and they tend to be unusually focused, determined and highly motivated to reach the highest levels of their fields. One father of a prodigy described his son's passion for math as a rage to master. Yeah. In order to punish him, they would tell him that he had to go play outside Ah. because that's all the kid wanted to do was read and do math problems. Interesting. It's like an addict. Yeah. Feeding their math addiction. Well, some other common characteristics of prodigies include great confidence in their abilities along with a naive sense of these abilities in relation to those of others. There's often a surprise that these kids experience that others don't have their same abilities. They're like, you weren't three when you won a Nobel Prize. Yeah, exactly. And I would never want to play a chess prodigy. They would be sorely disappointed. Uh, yeah, I would just start giggling nervously and walk away. Whew. But when you look at the science behind prodigies, asking the question of what exactly is going on in these kids' brains, what sets them apart, scientists still aren't sure. Yeah, it is still a little murky. And while we talked about how you can't have a prodigy without a supportive parent, most of the arguments talking about the science of prodigies focuses on nature over nurture. Because, yes, you might have a supportive parent who makes sure that you do all your studying and you have the money to go to college at the age of five. But if you don't already have some of that structural foundation in place already, that, uh, you know, becoming a prodigy isn't going to happen anyway. Yeah. And Ellen Winner, who is a psychologist who has studied and written about prodigies, told NPR, quote, I believe that anything that shows up so early without training has got to be either a genetic or some other biological basis. But at the same time, it's still not clear whether her hunch is right, whether that prodigy brain is any different from the brain of other kids, partially because they simply have not done a lot of neurological research on these exceptional children. Right, because like we talked about earlier, it's the savants who have a lot of the scientific research because that's like, we need to fix these kids. Right. It's more of a psychologist's philosophical debate over over uh, prodigies almost. Yeah, I mean, because also with the savants, if they can find the areas of the brain that are working in overdrive, then maybe they can 
apply that to help other areas of the brain catch up, whereas prodigies will be fine, most likely. Yeah, and so looking at brain differences, there is a possibility that gifted children, for instance, have greater specialization in brain areas that control motor behavior and increased communication between the two hemispheres, although nobody's quite sure whether prodigies are born with superior motor skills or if they develop them through intense practice. Well, and there are also issues of genetics that come up a lot because uh, the kids from Terman's study, those termites, went on to have exceptionally bright children as well, with 16% scoring in the gifted range. Although, again, there's a nature question of whether or not those kids were being brought up, told that they were bright because they have exceptionally bright parents as well. And then there's this theory of ancestral memory, which is something that a guy named Daryl Treffert has talked about. And, And he thinks that maybe something called epigenetics is responsible for this. And epigenetics is essentially a mechanism in which environmental influences will make small changes in our DNA that help to control the systems that switch genes off and on and pass those changes down. In other words, DNA interacts with the environment to improve our mental functioning. Yeah, there's the commonly cited um, story of Yehudi Minyahin, who is a violinist. And his family story is really interesting. He comes from a long line of extremely musical, extremely spiritual uh, Jewish men who incorporated music into their religious practices. And so he's used as an example of this ancestral memory theory, because even though his family immigrated to the U.S. and distanced themselves from their extremely traditional and religious ancestors. There was something in him, as people talk about being in other prodigies, that that drew him to music from a very young age to become this incredible, amazing, talented prodigy. And that sounds very similar to this idea of prodigies being, quote-unquote, pre-tuned to grasp and master particular areas. And this is something put forward by that Tufts psychologist Feldman, um, who thinks that maybe they are equipped with a readiness to absorb and also express knowledge. And that would explain how and why prodigies are drawn to very domain-specific skills. You know, they're, we talked about how they're extreme specialists, finely attuned to a particular field of knowledge, rather than having these kids just be amazing across the board. And then finally, there's this theory put forward by Larissa Shavivina and Martha Morlock of the increased sensitivity. Uh, they think that there are these sensitive periods that occur when basically your mental development can accelerate really rapidly. And And part of what makes that process so rapid is the actualization of the intellectual potential and the growth of those cognitive resources at the same time. And it manifests as a child's passionate pursuit of a consuming interest. But you can almost think of it as like really rapidly building a Lego ladder, but yeah. of knowledge and memory. <laughs> a Lego ladder of knowledge. Um, but, but speaking of, you mentioned memory, there is obviously two ties with exceptional working memory in these kids. This is something that studies do seem to bear out in terms of prodigies having brains that have just a a finer tuned ability to hold information in the memory while being able to manipulate 
and process other incoming information. Because when we, when we think about our working memory and how telephone numbers, for instance, are split up those three digits and then the four digits to help us hold them in our brains. And even then, sometimes I have trouble remembering them. Whereas prodigies can see a whole string of numbers and manipulate them at the same time. Right. And that basically... You have all of this stuff stored up in the back of your mind, but a prodigy is taking new information that comes in and immediately being able to kind of rummage around in the long-term memory closet and pull some stuff out and apply the new information to the old information and therefore, like we just talked about, build that sort of cognitive ladder to come to new and faster conclusions. Yeah, and research on gifted kids by Camilla Benbow has also highlighted uh, specializations in whether the child is more mathematically oriented or more verbally oriented and how the math talent has a working memory that's really great, obviously, at retaining numerical, spatial, and visual information, whereas verbal kids tend to retain the words because I'm telling you if you read I had a little ladybug I mean <laughs> just the the playful puns <laughs> I kid I did have some good rhymes in there though I uh, no I'm sure you did um well so the researchers talk about how this enhanced memory like let's go back to the ladder one more time this enhanced memory is a function of a match between the kind of information that is needing to be recalled and the kind of talent possessed. So in a prodigy, it's that unique intersection of, I already sort of have this capability, this foundation of information that I've grasped onto, whether it's math, whether it's chess, whether it's the piano. And, you know, and that just intersects with what they're able to do. Well, speaking of the brain of the prodigy and also the this puzzle of why we hear about male prodigies, boy prodigies, a lot more often, or at least we have historically, compared to female prodigies, we have to talk about a potential link with autism spectrum disorders. Because this is also some of the newer research that is coming up with these extremely gifted children. Right. In 2012, Joanne Rustatz and Jordan Erbach looked at eight high IQ kids whose various abilities were all over the place. But in common, they had an extraordinary working memory. Each kid scored off the charts better than 99% of the general population. But in that study, four out of the eight prodigies had family members who either had an autism diagnosis or had a first or second degree relative with an autism diagnosis. Three of the prodigies themselves had been diagnosed with autism. And as a group, they all showed higher levels of autistic traits than a control group. And people have pointed out, too, how autistic-like traits stand out in prodigies like that attention to detail, that rage to master. Uh, the kids scored higher on this than people diagnosed with Asperger's, in fact, which is a high-functioning form of autism. And on top of that, both prodigies and kids on the autism spectrum are more likely to be male, and both are associated, too, with difficult pregnancies. Very interesting, yeah. Well, Time magazine in 2012 pointed out that prodigies appear to benefit from certain autistic tendencies while avoiding the shortfalls of others. So think of a savant versus a prodigy. Um, and the researchers, Russ Satz and Erbach, wrote, one possible explanation for the child prodigy's lack of deficits is that while the child prodigies may have a form of autism, 
A biological modifier suppresses many of the typical signs of autism but leaves attention to detail, a quality that enhances their prodigiousness, undiminished or even enhanced. So, in other words, prodigies' genetic traits don't compromise their social skills or lead them to suffer from disabilities that typically accompany autism spectrum disorders. Yeah, for instance, when you look at a kid like Jacob Barnett, who might sound familiar because his name has popped up in the media a lot in the past couple of years because he was diagnosed with autism at two. And his mom eventually took him out of special ed, I think when he was in elementary school, because the teachers told her that he would really just never even be able to tie his shoes. But now he's 14 and having been allowed to kind of guide his own studies, he's now studying condensed matter physics in college. And I watched part of a TEDx talk that he gave about math and about how when he first applied to college, he had to wait a semester because the administrators weren't sure whether or not he was really ready. And he was like, well, and you know what I did? I just started studying this theorem that some people are saying, if I solve it, I, I could be up for the Nobel Prize. Uh-huh. No big deal. <laughs> no big deal. But I mean, clearly he's, I mean, he's giving a TEDx talk. I mean, the, he's, he's socialized very well right. and is performing far above what special ed teachers thought that he would be able to. And talking about her son's just incredible abilities, Barnett's mom talks about how, you know, he wasn't speaking. There, he, there was just no getting through to him. She was afraid he, she would lose him almost. But it was a matter, in her opinion, as his mother, of getting him in front of something that just absolutely captured that incredible focus. Yeah, and surprisingly, it was shadows. He was fascinated by shadows and how they played on the wall and, and you know, in other environments and was also fascinated by stars. And she just let him kind of go with that and really start exploring and and it brings up all of these theories about how you have, you know, those either those sensitive periods or that pretunement to just absorb all of that knowledge in that specialized field at such an accelerated pace. And there's, I feel like there's a lot of um, like media questioning as far as what happens to prodigies when they grow up. There's less, as we've talked about, less actual research into what happens to these kids when they become adults. One suggestion is that just the prodigy, the quote unquote prodigy disappears as the child gets older and they catch up to adults and kids catch up with them. Yeah, I mean, there's sort of a limitation to the kinds of fields that prodigies are often drawn to in that it is very mathy or very focused on chess. It's often uh, fields within very specific and laid out rules like the the work has kind of already been done. And so the prodigy sometimes tapers off when they have to think more creatively and apply their knowledge to more open ended kinds of things. Right. Which is why it's so rare to see a prodigy like writing, a, you know, writing a novel or writing a play, because mm-hmm. a lot of the time something like writing a play or writing a scientific paper calls on so many other resources and life experiences that a three-year-old, however brilliant, would not have. Although you see so many visual art prodigies, mm-hmm. or specifically with painting. Right. 
feel like that's kind of the hot prodigy today is the child painter. And that's one reason why that psychologist Ellen Winner was really impressed by the story of a child prodigy cellist who was, I think he's now in his late 20s, early 30s, and is branching out from classical and trying to do more experimental types of music. And she said that's really rare to see within a prodigy because it's almost like that that specialized part of the brain is so specialized, they get locked in. Right. Well, and, and I mean, not even just being locked into a specialty, but also being told your entire freaking life by your parents and teachers and whoever else is around you that you're, oh my, you're so incredible. You're so incredible. You're so gifted. You're a genius. I mean, a lot of, in interviews, a lot of these child prodigies and gifted children grow up and they are like, God, you guys put too much pressure on me. I, you know, I, I couldn't live up to a single thing that you expected of me. There was one kid who, was a math prodigy and he is an adult working at McDonald's. Yeah. You know, I mean, a lot of these kids are just like, there was way too much pressure when, when I was no longer the hot thing, you know, I just felt like I was a failure. Yeah. There's a young artist right now who first made her name a couple years ago when she was a six year old, I believe, painter. And now she came out with a new exhibit as a nine-year-old painter. And people aren't as interested because it becomes less fascinating the older that they get. But for that reason, Ellen Winter says it's so dangerous to call children geniuses. Instead, she says, say something along the lines of, you're terrifically musical and you're going to have a wonderful musical life. Um, and I also thought uh, it was noteworthy that in that story on child prodigies that first got me thinking about this subject on NPR, the 12-year-old pianist that they were interviewing hates the word prodigy. Yeah. She says, please don't call me a prodigy. Yeah, it's it's a lot of pressure. I can't imagine. Well, and especially these days, if you're a prodigy, you are going to be immediately blasted out onto the Internet, too. That's yeah. going to become your identity probably forever. Yeah. But I do still wonder, though, with that gender aspect, with overall the the names of prodigies usually being more boy names than girl names, if it does link over to that relationship possibly with autism and maybe how autism affects the male brain more or differently. I mean, so if we look at one in 88 kids has autism, but that number is one in 54 for boys, we're naturally going to find more boys with autism. And if autism is linked to being a prodigy, I would think those numbers would translate over. But I also think that uh, researcher Goldsmith, who we mentioned at the top of the podcast, has there's something to her theory that, hey, if women aren't welcome in a field, you're not going to be able to even ever recognize their genius in it. Exactly. Because autism obviously can't explain that gap entirely because not all prodigies are autistic and not all autistic kids are prodigies. And so I have a feeling that the nature side of that argument is maybe more to blame because I do, I do think there's something to this theory that we think of geniuses as men. Hmm. Podcast for another time? Podcast for another time. Maybe our listeners have the answer. Oh, if there are any prodigies listening, please write in to us or parents of prodigies. If you are a parent, too, 
Do you think about whether or not your child is a prodigy? I thought about this while uh, reading up on all of these children and I can see how if you're a parent and all of a sudden your child starts playing the piano magnificently and you might get so overzealous, but it seems like that's also a lot of responsibility for the parent as well. Yeah. But what about you, Caroline? Would you want a, a child prodigy of your own? <laughs> of my very own? That does seem like a really big responsibility. I would in no way be able to teach or tutor a child in math. So I guess I would I would like a prodigy dog. A prodigy dog? Yeah. The, like, yes. It, it had a pretunement for not wetting the carpet. And a pretunement for fetching you treats. That's right. Yeah, the dog fetches me the treats. I think we're on to something. So follow up episodes on boy geniuses and prodigy dogs. Correct. Great. Well, with that, we want to hear from you, mathematicians, pianists, who's listening. Let us know. Momstuff at discovery.com is where you can send your emails. You can also tweet us at momstuffpodcast and find us on Facebook and message us there as well. And we have a couple of messages to share with you when we come right back from a quick break. And now back to our letters. Well, we have a couple letters here from some women in engineering. Hooray. Uh, this is obviously in response to our episode on women in engineering. Yeah. Yeah, who's the prodigy now? And this letter is unsigned, so I'll just dive right in. As a recent female graduate with a degree in biochemical engineering, I think that the STEM series is awesome. I was lucky enough to have family members in the engineering field to encourage me to pursue an engineering degree. Since I chose biomedical, the male-to-female ratio is pretty good at my school, but now that I'm in the real world, I'm one of three women in my department. I don't find this intimidating, though. I find it empowering that I am just as capable as all of the men in the room, and I love the field that I'm working in. As for the industrial engineering being a quote-unquote joke engineer, at least at my school, that didn't originate from the amount of women in the field, but from the fact that they only take half engineering classes and half business classes, which when you compare the workloads seems much easier. Although this may be true, I think there are also many engineers who don't have the skill set to work in a more people-oriented setting, so the two are very hard to compare. So thanks for that insight. Um, I have a letter here from Sherry, who followed her father's footsteps into engineering. Sherry says, Engineering work can be interesting, challenging, and project-oriented, and many jobs are just 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. on weekdays. And she says it's usually a more family-friendly career path compared to others. Plus, demand for engineers tends to be stronger than in most other professions. In my experience, I found that male attitudes, especially in undergrad, tended to be very positive towards women being in engineering. The guys loved that they could discuss science and math with a girl, and they seemed to wish there were more in engineering. I must confess, though, that my experience in undergrad as an engineering student was miserable. Suffering from the imposter syndrome and from a desire to have good enough grades for law school, I studied very hard and had very little social life. I can remember studying on many a Friday night. In the end, those miserable four years were definitely worth it, though, because I am very happy with my career now. I think many women don't realize that engineering is a valuable stepping stone toward other careers like management, law, and even sales and marketing. You have to be able to understand the product in order to sell it. More and more folks on Wall Street have backgrounds in physics, math, and engineering, too. 
So even if you aren't passionate about engineering itself, it can set you on a path to and open doors for other fulfilling careers. So thank you, Sherry, for sharing your story. And thanks again to everyone who's written in. MomStuffAtDiscovery.com is where you can send your letters. You can also tweet us at MomStuffPodcast and message us on Facebook. And you can also follow us on Instagram at StuffMomNeverToldYou. Also check out our Tumblr at StuffMomNeverToldYou.tumblr.com. And you most certainly should check out our YouTube channel. We're at YouTube.com slash StuffMomNeverToldYou. And don't forget to subscribe. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Audible.com is the leading provider of downloadable digital audiobooks and spoken word entertainment. Audible has over 100,000 titles to choose from to be downloaded to your iPod or MP3 player. Go to audiblepodcast.com slash stuffmom to get a free audiobook download of your choice when you sign up today. That's audiblepodcast.com slash stuffmom.